What's up to all my Satoshi Nakamoto fanboys out there? Mike Mills of Mike Mills Mortgage and Finance here. Real estate investors. With the prices of real estate climbing higher and higher by the day and interest rates shrinking your cash flow on every new investment you can make, are you interested in finding out about a new way to invest in real estate? Well, regardless of how you feel about crypto, NFTs, and all things digital money, the tokenization of assets is coming online faster than you can imagine. The next generation of billionaires are already being created in the space of blockchain and decentralized finance. And now's the time to start educating yourself on how all this works or get left behind in the fossil record. Joining me will be the founder and president of the Texas Blockchain Council, Lee Bratcher. Lee is leading the charge in Texas to make our great state the trailblazer in regulation when it comes to blockchain adoption and all its use cases, including real estate. Lee's going to share with us what current bills are being presented in the Texas legislature and what impact they'll have on our business if passed. He's been fighting the good fight for years now to make Texas the leading innovator in this quickly emerging technology. Major investment firms like BlackRock are rushing to be the first ones to legitimize crypto and other investments into all things blockchain. And you know what they say, you want to know what the future holds for your industry? Follow the money. The time is now to get up to speed on the future of real estate and the quicker you understand it, the more money you can make. Hello, hello, everybody. How are we doing today? Um, so in a real estate market brimming with sky high prices and soaring rates, where does the forward thinking investor turn? Well, enter the groundbreaking world of tokenization and fractionalization. Today, we're going to be chatting with a trailblazer in this new innovative technology that will forever change how assets are bought and sold. And if you've ever wondered how blockchain technology might revolutionize the way we invest in properties, making it accessible and diversified, then this is the episode that you've been waiting for. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just venturing into real estate, the future is here and my next guest is going to help us navigate it. But first, uh, my name is Mike Mills, and this is the uh, Texas Real Estate and Finance Podcast. Um, I have 13 years under my belt as a mortgage loan originator, and I've seen just about everything you can imagine when it comes to all things real estate and finance. And every week, I want to bring you perspectives from leading professionals in the real estate space, from spotlight interviews to top-tier agents to new innovations coming down the pipe that will potentially revolutionize the way we do business. If you tune in each week, whether you're a seasoned pro or someone who's simply fascinated by the real estate market, this podcast will ensure that you stay informed, innovative, and always a step ahead of your competition. But before we dive in, quick little reminder to all my listeners, um, if you're finding value in these episodes, please hit the follow or subscribe button on Spotify or Apple uh, so you never miss a new podcast. And for all the full episode experience, make sure you check out and subscribe to my YouTube page at Mike Mills Mortgage and Finance. And um, your support kind of keeps this thing going and helps me bring more enriching, enriching content, enriching enriching content. I can't speak today, week after week. All right, so let's get started. So today we're honored to have a pioneer at the intersection of blockchain, crypto, and the state of Texas. Lee Bratcher is the driving force behind the Texas Blockchain Council, an associate, an association championing the interest of its members and striving to position Texas at the forefront of Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital assets globally. Lee, Lee doesn't just talk the walk, he actively advocates uh, at the Texas legislature, ensuring interests of the blockchain and crypto community are represented. And today he's here to shed light on the latest legislative uh, moves and their potential ripple effects on real estate and its investors. So welcome to the show, Mr. Lee. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Sorry, uh, got to go through all that intro stuff getting into it. So it's just the way this stuff works. But um, um, I really appreciate you stopping by. Um, you know, this is a topic that um, I have a lot of interest in simply because um, 
you know, the world's changing and um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in you gotta, you gotta adapt with it or kind of get left behind. So, you know, that's what we're kind of trying to do here. But before we get into everything about the Texas blockchain council, um, I want to start with just you. Um, my question is, is how does a U.S. army captain and former police officer find himself uh, as a leading advocate for blockchain technology in the state of Texas? How, how did we get to here, man? That's a great question. Jack of all trades, master of none, right? There you go. <laughs> uh, I, so I was in the military. I still am an army reservist, serve as an uh, innovation officer for the 75th Innovation Command, which supports Army Futures Command. Um, but my full-time job um, and, and the thing that I did the longest in my career was uh, as a political science professor, I researched uh, pro property rights and uh, taught uh, here in the DFW area at Dallas Baptist University. Okay. And it was in my research. So about 2015, I was up at the Army War College, actually there on an academic assignment, studying property rights. And I discovered the Bitcoin white paper and discovered blockchain and property rights. And the combination of those two, you know, if there's a lot of research out there that shows if people are secure in their property rights, their physical property rights, their real property, then those communities will flourish. They're less likely to join insurgencies or other kind of conflict. Um, it's been an institution that has served the West well for centuries, mm -hmm. and we've got incredible institutions of property rights in the U.S. and, and the rest of the Western democracies. Um, and so when I discovered digital property rights and how you know Bitcoin was the first really iteration of uh, solidifying digital property rights in the way that it does and, and how we can use the technology that was built with the Bitcoin white paper, blockchain technology, to secure property rights in other areas, both digitally and in the real world, uh, that's when I got hooked. And so I started the Texas Blockchain Council a few years after that while I was still uh, a political science professor. And then uh, very quickly thereafter, realized this is going to take a lot of work and I needed to leave my job as a political science professor and run the Texas Blockchain Council full time. Yeah, it's certainly a it's certainly a full time gig. You're not just uh, <laughs> doing things from time to time with that. You, uh, I see you're you're pretty involved um, all across the state uh, for different advocacy groups, talking to different people. Obviously, you're you know spending some time to chat with me for a little bit, so I appreciate that. But um, okay, so on the blockchain council itself, so um, in your own words, basically, you know what uh, what role is the Texas Blockchain Council playing in helping spread the word about blockchain and what it's capable of? What are you guys doing on a day to day? month to month, you know, year to year basis, really kind of getting the word out. So everybody understands, because I think the big separation, especially right now is, you know, from the general public, at least, um, you know, understanding the technology and what it's actually capable of. So what are you guys doing uh, to promote that? Yeah, it's really tough. You're right, because there are so many different nuances here and there's different verticals within blockchain technology. Um, you have Bitcoin and other permissionless cryptocurrencies. You have enterprise blockchain. You have uh, tokenization of real world assets, which typically runs on uh, public blockchains, permissionless blockchains. So it's really not something that is easily grasped with just uh, a phrase or a meme or something. You know, it, you really have to, to do a lot of education. So we end up doing exactly that. A lot of education for elected officials and staffers. And that's typically... Uh, down at the Capitol in Austin, webinars, in-person, lunch and learns. Um, then we put on networking events throughout Texas, Dallas, Houston, and Austin. 
Um, you know, we had you out at a tokenization of real estate event recently at, up in uh, Frisco, and that was a great time. So we end up we end up doing a lot of education, and it's mostly because everybody has heard of blockchain, or they heard of crypto, or they've heard of these different things, but very few people have actually took the time to to understand the nuances there. And so, because some of these things are quite different, like even Bitcoin and Ethereum are quite different. Yep. Uh, but most people would just say, "Oh, yeah, those are just those are cryptocurrencies." But in our world, they're totally different. Like they're, they're Bitcoin and Ethereum are solving completely different problems. Right. Uh, but then you have other verticals uh, like tokenization of real world assets, including real estate, that's different from those. So um, that that is the challenge. Is, well, yeah, go ahead. You guys are um, so. There's been a couple things. Uh, something that I don't know. If, I'm, I'm sure you saw this, but just just day before yesterday, I believe, um, Citigroup came out and announced that they were doing uh, digital deposits, essentially, so they could take your deposits and uh, convert them into tokens on their internal blockchain, essentially, um, allowing for transfers globally with very little cost and very quickly, um, which is, you know, primarily the biggest advantage when it comes to finance on the side of is, is it the amount of time that it takes? It, it doesn't take any time at all. And the cost is minimal for this type of stuff. Um, and then you have, you know, companies like BlackRock and um, Invesco and Fidelity getting into uh, applying for spot uh, spot ETFs for Bitcoin as well. So just within the last month or so, there's been a lot of a lot of movement in this area. Why do you think, you know, within the past 12 months, you've seen so much what I would call like institutional um, entities really kind of getting into the game now um, when it's been, I mean, this technology has been around since what was it? 2008 when, when Satoshi wrote his paper, is that, is that when it was? That's when it was. Yeah. The first transaction was 2000 or January, 2009, but the paper was written in 2008. You're correct. And I, I think it's really around, um, the institutions, uh, first of all, a lot of the brand risk that was there several years ago is no longer there. Um, unfortunately, when you say brand risk, do you mean because of the stigma attached to the crypto bros or whatever world? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, Sam Bankman Freed and FTX did not help us there. They, they uh, was a big reputational hit to the industry. Sure. But, um, you know, just like we didn't stop trading energy derivatives when uh, Enron right. went went down. We're not going to stop with this technology because there was a bad actor who did something that was, um, you know, complete theft and, and inexcusable. Uh, we we are seeing the fact that institutions are understanding the differences here. So, point in case, the Citigroup uh, thing that you mentioned, and also J.P. Morgan, yes. they both. They both use internal blockchains for yep. internal settlement, and those are private permission blockchains. That's a totally different thing than a Bitcoin ETF. So right. you could have BlackRock, uh, which has applied for a Bitcoin spot ETF, and we'll probably get it within the next couple months, along with all the all the other ETF applications. You know, the SEC is going to approve them all at the same time, in all likelihood. Um, that is, they, they are capable of holding that in one hand, but then also on the other hand. Uh, grasping an internal blockchain that increases their transaction speed on the back end of these uh, banking ledgers, which really those those can't be public and permissionless because um, you know they're they're not they don't function the same way as a public permission blockchain like Bitcoin. 
Right. Uh, so you're really just using that in a consortium of banks or even within one really big bank like Citigroup, you know, for them to settle all of their internal transactions with, with zero friction uh, is a pretty interesting concept. Or then a consortium of banks to settle uh, all of their um, transactions is is sort of similar to like FedNow, yes. uh, sort of a step beyond FedNow. FedNow is like real-time ACH. So a step beyond FedNow would be like uh, uh, banks using an internal stable coin, if you will, or tokenized deposits to settle. Mm-hmm. And then a step beyond that is a central bank digital currency, where the federal government is then issuing digital dollars on blockchain rails to to banks for them to, to utilize now on, on that real quick how do you there's a lot of uh in in the crypto world there's a ton of uh people on both sides of the fence there on the cbdc so where where do you kind of how do you feel about that what, what are the the p- positives and negatives because essentially you're talking about a digital currency controlled by the central bank which you know yeah. depending on how you look at it can have some positives and negatives um so wh- where do you kind of fall on that we we are firmly opposed at the Texas Blockchain Council. So, okay. uh, and we think the mo- most people that we interact with are also opposed. Right. Um, it is not the right direction for the U.S. for any country really that believes in um, privacy and freedom, uh, the principles that we that our nation has been built on. Yeah. Um, it, it works great for China and for authoritarian regimes, and unfortunate it's unfortunate for the people that are. Uh, being forced to use it there because their freedoms are being inhibited. Um, their social credit scores are being dinged whenever they spend digital yuan on some product that the government doesn't doesn't deem as uh, a worthwhile investment. So um, we're, we're opposed, but I will say here, here's some more nuance. Unfortunately, I hate to be bringing in all this nuance, but there is a de- definitely a need for tokenized U.S. dollar deposits. Okay. So we would say that for the Federal Reserve, for the central bank digital currency, um, that is privacy um, um, problematic. So for them to issue that directly to a con- to the to the U.S. citizen and to a consumer, um, that's a problem for privacy and freedom, right? That's the Chinese model. Um, for a bank to tokenize U.S. deposits, that is no different than what we have today, and only using blockchain rails for quicker movement. So we're not opposed to that. Because um, just like that, what your bank deposits are basically, you know, digital as it is right now. I mean, exactly. you're not walking around with exact cash. Yeah. And, and there, there are enough firewalls in place currently between the, the end user, the bank, before you get to like complete surveillance by the Fed. Yes. Um, so we're, we're supportive of that. We're certainly supportive of privately issued stable coins like USDC, mm-hmm. which is issued by Circle, you know, there's $120 billion of uh, U.S. dollars locked up in stable coins globally. 99% of dollars are backed by U.S. dollars. The other 1% are backed by uh, gold or euros, right? So this is a way for the dollar to prolong itself as the world's reserve currency. What if there's $10 trillion stable dollars worth of uh, tri- stable coins five years from now, right? It's grown from zero to 120 billion in like three, four years. Right. Um, so it's it's grown quite rapidly. Uh, and we think that this is really healthy for the US dollar, really healthy for um, honestly US debt because these stablecoin issuers are forced buyers of US treasuries. Because what they do is, for your listeners that aren't familiar with stablecoins, 
if I want to, if I want Circle USDC, I'll take my dollar. Say I'm taking a thousand US dollars, and I'm going to uh, send that to Circle. They're going to put that money in Bank of New York Mellon or or somewhere, uh, some institution, uh, or so, some sort of money market fund, and they're going to issue me an equivalent number of USDC. So if I ever need to redeem that USDC for those US dollars, I can do that at a later date. But then I have $10,000 of USDC that I can use on the internet to, to close a transaction in Italy, You know, maybe a, a, a banking a transaction with a, a business partner that normally I would have to send a wire for that costs $30, that takes you know, X amount of days. Um, you know, ACHs are much cheaper, but those don't work as well internationally. So um, you can actually clear those transactions in seconds for just pennies of a transaction cost. So what they so on the back end, those dollars are being invested in U.S. Treasuries while, you know, it's either held in cash, U.S. dollars or in Treasury bills. So that way, when I come to redeem it, there is enough dollars there to redeem you know the 10,000 that I put in. And so long story short, it makes them the force buyer of U.S. Treasuries. Well, we, we want people buying U.S. debt right now because uh, our debt servicing costs in, the, in this country are ballooning out of control. Yes. Um, so that's a long rant about the stablecoin issue. I think it is important that we have tokenized deposits. It's just, unfortunately, it's not as easy as they're good or bad. It's just, you have to dig into these different, uh, areas. So it's sort of on a spectrum, like central bank digital currency on the far end is that's concerning from a privacy and freedom perspective and surveillance. And then you get to tokenized deposits, you get to privately issued stable coins, and then you get to Bitcoin on the other end, which is completely permissionless and and um, privacy enhancing, but it may be, you know, and, and I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, but it's not necessarily the only thing, the only digital asset, you know, we, we have to have tokenized dollar deposits too, because the dollar remains the primary currency for certainly us as Americans, but also the world. And we want to make sure that it stays that way, because if it doesn't, um, our debt servicing costs will go from really bad to catastrophic. Because uh, if we can't borrow in dollars, I mean, the, the U.S. would go bankrupt yeah. almost immediately within months. Yeah. Well, we're having issues. I mean, obviously, I'm in the mortgage world. So, you know, with uh, with especially within the last day or so when the Fed came out and basically said they were pausing on the rates, but they also were very hawkish going forward, saying that they're expecting one more possibly this year, um, which has caused the bond market to go crazy with the amount of debt we've been issuing lately. The 10 year treasury yields are way up. So, it, you know, there's all kinds of issues that are affecting all walks of the economy. And, you know, one of the I think big benefits right now, especially when you look at stable coins, like you brought up, is that um, with the rates being so high as they are, there's lots of um, incentives now for banks to hold your money. So if you want to deposit your cash with, say, like a Coinbase or somebody like that and hold your cash in USDC versus dollars, you can get 5%. They're offering 5% on your money right now. So if you're holding your cash there versus holding it in your savings account with Bank of America, who's offering you nothing, then um, you can get a rate of return on that money in somewhere else that's a little less risky than, say, sticking it in the stock market and betting on something that could you know, come tumbling down here in the near future. So um I think there's a lot of avenues for people to start, you know, educating themselves and getting involved with this because the thing that I've been harping on for the last several months is, you know, whether or not you understand this technology or whether or not you think it's something that is going to be a long-term beneficial thing for you or anybody else, it's coming. I mean, it's not even coming, it's here and you have to really, 
you know, get into it because this is what is going to be the driving force behind how, how finance is handled, you know, going into the, into the future, you know, until something else changes. So, um, the, the old days of doing things are kind of past us and, you know, people need to start really figuring out how this stuff works, where, where it's going to affect them and how it's going to benefit them or affect them negatively, depending on how you look at it. And just like with any other issue, like you said, there's a spectrum of, you know, you've got the far side of USD or uh, um, CBDCs, which, you know, I'm right there with you. You know, the privacy of that issue is is a big concern for me. And then you've got the far side of it, which is Bitcoin, which is completely open, um, you know, that that has an immutable ledger that anybody can see that's very, very secure. So, um, you know, it's it's nuanced, just like any other topic when it comes to uh, anything in this country. So um, getting on the topic of real estate specifically, um, from your point of view, uh, what's some of the most significant benefits that we can br- ultimately bring to real estate transactions when it comes to blockchain and, and everything behind it? Yeah, I think in, in the real estate world, there's two really two areas of promise. And one I think is on us now and one is going to be years out. Right. So the one that's on us now is tokenized um, equity. So that's that's with LPs being able to um, enter and leave positions in real estate with the same kind of liquidity that we see in public markets, like the same kind of liquidity that we see with Apple or Google stock. We will soon be able to do that with real estate projects that are tokenized. Um, So you'll be able to buy a portion of an asset that um, that's uh, been tokenized. The cap table is tokenized. All the LPs or interests are tokenized, and therefore they can trade uh, these tokenized securities on securities exchanges, either a national securities exchange or an ATS, uh, otherwise known as an alternative trading system. Um, so that's that's here, and there's already buildings in Texas that are being tokenized, and many many throughout the world. Um, it really won't make a big dent into, dent into. I think your listeners' lives until like some meaningful percentage of buildings and or or commercial real estate and residential real estate is tokenized. Right now, it's far less than one percent. Right, it's right. a percentage of a percent. But if we get to five percent of all real estate globally being tokenized, that makes a big difference. And if people are able to say, "Hey, I've got a ten percent position. I'm one of the LPs into this development over here," and um, it's halfway built. It's going great. You know, maybe I, I invested when it was a high risk. Now it's just moderate risk. And, you know, my, my assets appreciated. There's real time price discovery because there's trading, you know, there's, there's trading in and out of these positions and I need some liquidity. I could sell some portion of my ownership on a secondary market, use that money to do what I needed to. And then maybe I come back into it. Maybe I, I don't. Um, you don't have to unload an entire property. You can yeah. unload a piece of it because you only own a piece of it. Exactly. Right. And, and there's also a lot of inter- interesting instruments, like on the debt side, when you had that kind of um, collateralizability for an asset, mm-hmm. you know, real estate's the best collateral, as you know, of any asset in right. the world. Right. Um, with, with tokenized real estate, you have an additional layer of ease when it comes to using that as collateral. So you could even, instead of sell it, it, maybe you have a capital gains and you're like, Hey, I was an early investor in this, in this development. It's now, you know, it's now an income producing property, the property it's been completed. Uh, there's tenants and my investment has appreciated X percentage. I have a pretty big capital gains liability. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have great tax strategies 
there's a million different great real estate tax strategies, but how much easier would it be if you could just immediately uh, use that token to get collateral for um, for your investment without selling it, without incurring a capital gains liability, but that happens on some sort of um, you know automated uh, liquidity pool where someone's able to like instantly recognize that collateral ability and give you a flash loan within like five minutes. So you're basically saying that not only do we have the actual asset, the hard asset itself as the building as part of the collateral, but then the token itself that you own related to the equity or the cash flow of that can also be some sort of collateralized asset to where you can borrow against that token too, if you need quick cash to do anything, right? That's right. So there's different yeah, layers it, to it. Yeah, and essentially it'd be the same thing. I mean, it would be you're you're just borrowing against the equity that you own sure. in in the you know, and and I guess that does it's include like holding cash. a stock. You're borrowing against a, a stock in a company. The the company is the back, you know, is the collateral part of the stock. But then if you want to borrow against your 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 shares in that company, it's the same idea, right? Yeah, yeah, and certainly that happens now. But what we're talking about is a much more granular scale, like right. a small time investor, in you know maybe one of the smaller LPs in this project is able to get that kind of liquidity in like five minutes where they, yeah. uh, you know, they're on a platform, the, the, uh, the algorithm automatically recognizes the value of this, of this asset. They can verify it instantaneously on the blockchain. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's programmed to provide, uh, some sort of, um, um, loan at a certain percentage within, within just a few minutes. There's a lot of concern right now in the commercial real estate space because you have, and it's, I think it's only in one sector specifically with the retail office space because warehouses are doing great apartments, you know, and that kind of thing are doing well. They've kind of slowed some of the construction because I think they're under the idea that they're almost overbuilding at this point, which is, which is not a bad thing. We could, we could use a little uh, oversupply on housing to bring some of the costs down, but, um, but when you look at commercial real estate on the retail side with these big buildings, especially in large metropolitan areas, you know, California's having a really hard time with things right now. Um, I know New York's dealing with some issues with downtown office space. Could you ever see a situation or do you think there's a mechanism where um, the debt, because you're looking at these small banks, these small regional banks that are holding these loans and they're going to reset because, you know, commercial real estate typically turns over every few years uh, and resets the rate. Is there a place where where this fractionalization could become a liquidity, you know, uh, solution for some of these either small banks or investors that are holding these big loans at these low rates that are going to reset that they're not going to be able to, to, to really handle the cash flow at least in the short term. Cause just like anything else, you know, the market's going to turn around, you know, I mean, we're in a bad spot right now to some degree, but you know, I think there's a lot of uh, hope for the future, but, um, do you think that there's a place where, you know, the the fractionalization could bridge a gap between these these financing situations where these small banks aren't willing or aren't maybe aren't able you know to to hold those and then the investors are also looking for a place to park that debt at a at a more reasonable cost. You know, I would uh, I'd probably defer to real estate professionals on that question, but I I will say just from studying economics that when there when there is inefficient allocation of capital. If you're able to get more granular, the market will, um, it's like water flowing, you know, downstream, right? The market will flow uh, and provide um, opportunities for, for those, you know, for people seeking yield in that way. 
Um, and I think the only thing that's going to perhaps um, be a learn or be sort of a, an obstacle or hindrance there is, you know, you're going to have higher, higher interest rates on those kinds of sure uh, in, in the near term. Right. So yep. it might require the, um, uh, the debtor to, to swallow a larger or a higher interest rate in the near term for them to, you know, be comfortable there. But uh, I think if there's a market to be made and, and this technology allows for more fractionalization and granularity there, I, I do think it could be a potential bridge. Um, and, and not to say that that would be um, detrimental to institutional lenders like regional banks that, that do have a, a significant part of their portfolio in you know, real estate debt. Um, that's probably going to remain like the gold standard for decades, right? Yeah. It's just uh, another an, another option that provides uh, a little bit more competition in the lending space. So um, let's let's look at now with the blockchain associated to title. And I actually, uh, you and I kind of briefly chatted about this before, but do you think that blockchain has the capability of streamlining the title transfer process? And then how do you think that would look in practice if it actually did get to that point? I know regulation is a big piece of this, you know, um, it just plays a role in all of this, which is what you guys are fighting the good fight on every day. But, but what do you see um, as far as the benefits of the technology when it comes to title transfers? Yeah, uh, Mike, that was the other thing that I was going to say. You know, I said two things, one that's yep. market driven and the other. So the other is the other use case for uh, blockchain and real estate is exactly that. It's it's ownership transfer, it's title, uh, title transfer. Um, but that one's the one that I think is a long ways out. Right. And it's for the, the reason that you mentioned. It's um, we governments are not incentivized to um, innovate. And that's okay. The private sector innovates in the government. Uh, that's just not what the government's built to do. Right. Government solves other collective action problems. Um, so I don't think we're going to see title, especially here in Texas, uh, just because of the way that title has evolved here. Um, it's highly regulated. Uh, the 254 counties in Texas, uh, the county clerks and, and the land administration offices at the counties really have a lot of control over that process. And I just don't see enough political momentum. Um, money? <laughs> yeah, money, political yeah. momentum, building. And uh, I also see the title industry sort of resisting it. And if the title industry resists it, then uh, probably not, probably not going to happen anytime soon. I think what we will see, I think the only reason that it, we will eventually get to a parallel system where title is also on blockchain because you're going to have to run a parallel system for years mm -hmm. before you move fully to a blockchain right. title uh, system. So you'll have your, your existing um, uh, software uh, the title plants, the way they do it now, they may have, you know, an imaging system. They may have a hard copy. They probably have uh, different counties do it different ways and different title plans do it different ways, but you have definitely duplicate multiple sources of, of validity or multiple sources of truth. And so you've got to run a parallel blockchain. So you add on a little expense in the short term. Right. And before you can drop off some of those duplication, duplicative efforts uh, on the back end. And so, um, you know, the title companies, the title plants that adopt this technology, I think will 
eventually gain market share. Um, but that's probably 10 years off. Will you, will you explain just so any, so everybody would be aware, what does that, what does that actually look like? Why is there, why is blockchain a useful technology when it comes to title transfers? Sure. It's really, truly what a blockchain is designed to do. So at its very core, blockchains are distributed digital ledgers. Uh, they're ledgers that track asset ownership. So uh, title systems have developed for, you know, centuries uh, around this idea that, you know, you have to have surety of title. And uh, we have a really great title system here in Texas and in the U.S. as a whole. Um, it, it may not be as efficient as it could be. But that's not that doesn't mean that it's not been an absolute, absolutely transformative and, and beneficial thing for us as a, as a, a nation. Um, so what blockchain can come alongside title and do is provide the, the ledger by which assets move. So um, the way that it works, you would have, uh, say, a title is hashed onto the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And when that uh, hash is complete, it's added to all of the other transactions in the chain. And that new hash um, is, is um, verifiable in such a way that uh, if you were, try, you were to try to even change one comma, one like latitude, long, longitudinal line on, on any sort of survey or any sort of title document, uh, any pixel actually, even that is changed on this document would actually break the hash. And so if you if you if you've done that, then it's it's rejected and not added to the chain. So the only um, the only documents pertaining to title on the chain are ones that are verifiably true and accurate to all the other actors in the blockchain, whether it's permission blockchain or a permissionless one. Um, so you can have a, a title transfer. And then the next time that title is transferred, you, you really wouldn't need an insurance policy to, right. uh, you know, title insurance, insurance policy is the, is the ledger. <laughs> it's there. It's the yeah. ledger, and yeah. you can instantly verify that, okay, a, a pixel, a comma, a zero, a nothing has changed on this document from the last time that it was entered. And uh, we're going to, we're going to update it now with public private key cryptography. So such that the, the, uh, the seller is going to uh, verify this transaction with their private key. Um, that asset is then going to be transitioned over to a buyer, probably through some sort of um, escrow escrow process or county, you know, governmental entity. Right. And then uh, the buyer then holds the private key uh, to that title that demonstrates ownership uh, in that property. So it's it's um, again lots of different things would need to happen between where we are now and, and where we're going. And I, I also want to, you know, re uh, reassert that I don't think this means that title insurance is going away anytime soon. Right. You know, maybe by the time that I have grandkids. Right. Yeah. We're a long way. On, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My kids are like in elementary school right now. So yeah, listener that's not watching. Right. So yeah. um, we are decades away from not needing title insurance, if ever. I mean, maybe yeah. we even still have title insurance, but the policy premiums are uh, cheaper. Know, yeah, they're cheaper. And obviously, we have regulated title uh, based on a formula right now. I think that's got to change, personally. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> because you don't, you don't think it should be based off title companies' expenses? <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we, uh, <laughs> we've got to let the market act a little bit more like... 
For yeah. example, I think it was in Ohio or Indiana or something. They were they were averaging like a title insurance policy for a, a two hundred fifty thousand dollar home for less than a thousand dollars. It was just a few hundred dollars for their their uh, and and the premium or the uh, uh, the liability, I guess, to the broker that um, under the underwriter was you know negligible, right? It was like eighty dollars worth of of their uh, liability as an underwriter. So it is pretty out of whack. Yeah, it's it's antiquated, but I'm I'm sure you're with all your experience uh being working with the legislature in Texas, you know, you you understand better than anybody how uh how slow things move and how um difficult it is to uh you know, usurp a current you know, method of doing something. Uh it's it's very challenging, especially, you know, when there's good money to be made, you know, it makes yeah. it even harder, you know, and that's, that's kind of the situation, but do you, are you aware of any other specific real estate projects or pilot programs in Texas that are using blockchains or, you know, that, that they're doing something new that we're not, we're not aware of right now? Yeah. Well, I know market space capital has tokenized, uh, uh, real estate, commercial real estate property off of, um, 635 and, um, oh, where is that? It's in Dallas off of 635, and I want to say near Marsh Lane. Okay. Um, Red Swan has tokenized some properties in Houston. Um, some of these other, th- there's a few properties tra- trading on some of these ATSs. The real, the real challenge for the vision of tokenized real estate is liquidity. Right. Um, and that's because there are multiple ATSs, and there's not enough liquidity on any of them individually. Because you don't have enough people bought in yet. So if you don't have enough people bought in, then you're not going to have a big pool of money to spread around. Correct. Right. Yeah. There, there's not enough liquidity on any of these platforms to really create a, an efficient market. Yeah. Uh, so if we had some sort of national securities exchange for real estate, um, similar to, um, you know, that that, that would act in, in a similar way to, say, uh, the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Right. Um, that is really, I think, where we need to go is, is one, one national securities exchange where sec- real estate security tokens trade. Right. Um, and, and maybe other kinds of private equity can trade there as well, right? It's just non-public uh, security tokens. I don't know the history of it uh, specifically, but, you know, obviously they had the, the NASDAQ or um, that NASDAQ came along, you know, after the the New York stock exchange was up and running and, and then they started, how did, do you, do you know how the, how they went from, you know, basically not existing to, you know, is there certain types of, you know, licenses they have to acquire? I mean, how does that, do you know how that works? Not, not exactly. I do know there are a lot of licenses and I do know that there are more than 15 uh, national uh, securities exchanges in public markets. Okay. Um, so I, I think what will be required is one of those like, you know, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or, or some of the smaller ones, right? Those are the two that we know the most. Some of the smaller ones to um, re, retrain their licenses and acquire additional licenses for private market securities uh, exchanges. And right now there are ATSs that, that I mentioned that do sort of serve that function in a, in a more limited way, but you're only allowed to trade on that platform with those assets that are listed on that platform. And um, some assets are restricted to um, accredited investors only if it's a Reg D uh, exemption. Some assets, you know, maybe there's like a Reg A exemption. Um, 
And it could be for not accredited investors, but you have to do a ton of investor education on the reggae right. uh, offerings. So uh, it's it's not it's clunky, and so it is all uh, regulatory challenges that are slowing it down. But I, I think it's it's taking the natural course, right? We can't just jump into this too quickly because there are, there are investor protections for a reason. Sure. Um, so you know, I, I would expect. Either one of these ATSs acquires the, the licenses required for a national securities exchange for private equity, you know, mainly real estate, um, or you see one of the public exchanges uh, dive into it. So if you're looking long term at this um, now, you know, at least right now, uh, I think there will be or there are there are currently options where uh, from um, individual home ownership where you can, if you have crypto assets, you can actually leverage those. There are companies that are doing, uh, lending based off of whatever assets you own. You know, obviously it's a percentage of it, just like anything else. Um, and you know, the, the regular, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA type loans that we do every day. Um, we can use crypto assets as verifiable assets to be used in the transaction. They have to convert them, you know, just like anything else. But so the, the wheels are starting to move in that direction. Now, I don't know of anything right now that's going to solve the issue that we have with the cost of buying a home right now. Um, you know, interest rates aside, you know, I mean, somebody told me the other day, they, they, uh, you know, they, I was, I was living when they were selling interest rates at 18%. And I said, yes, that's true. But in 1970 or 1982, when that was the average price of a home was $70,000. Um, nowadays, the average price of a home in the U S is somewhere around $350,000. So it's substantially higher, which makes the cost of home ownership kind of out of reach for a lot of people, at least right now. Um, so we're not going to solve that problem, at least not in any way that I'm aware of with blockchain. However, the idea of investing in real estate um, is something that for a very long time was um, only left to those who had the cash. Um, if you had money, a lot of money, you know, if you want to get into a syndicate and do investment in, you know, commercial properties, you had to have a hundred thousand, fifty thousand, whatever. Um, do you think that this fractionalization, you know, change in how real estate investing is happening is that going to more democratize uh the at the lower level for investors to be able to get into the game you know i, I always equate it to kind of what robin hood did with with stocks because that's essentially what they did is they you know one one apple stock price might be 350 dollars, and maybe you don't have enough money to buy one but you could buy five percent of that one stock and that's what you know kind of robin hood did and then you saw obviously during covid for a lot of different reasons but then you see the stock market explode because now there's all this other money that's coming in from the smaller guys you know maybe 100 200 400 here or there instead of hundreds of thousands but do you think or, or how long do you think it would take for that shift to start occurring you know, when you look at commercial real estate or just real estate investing in general, because I do know there are a few platforms out there that are doing investing on uh, single family homes as either, you know, rental properties or a rental portfolio and that kind of thing. So what, what are your thoughts on that? I think we're seeing it. Um, Fundrise has an offering like that. I don't know what their minimum investment is, but it's quite low. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are challenges with securities law there around uh, non-accredited investors, but you can create reg A offerings for non-accredited investors and you can have a certain percentage of your investor class be non-accredited. So um, I, I do think eventually, you know, it is the the goal of several of these companies like 
uh, Proppy, like uh, Peter Rex's company, Rex down in Austin, they want to get uh, a minimum investment in a real estate asset down to a dollar. Uh, so similar to what what Robinhood did for stocks, your example is very poignant. Um, I think it is very expensive and cost prohibitive to do Reg A securities offerings. Um, so you have to have a large enough asset or the cost of capital has to be high enough, which it is right now, right? Cost of capital sure. is really high right now to really make the business model work, to do a something like that, rather than just take a big syndication with accredited investors and do a reg D and just, you know, have very low compliance costs and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, it doesn't pencil out on those projects uh, and it certainly doesn't pencil out on like a, a residential home, but I do think that we are moving in a direction where it will. And so um as I said on the title side, I do think we'll get down to a dollar, you know, minimum investment for, for accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, you, you probably have to have an interesting strategy where you have like a, a parent Reg A that um, has you know subsidiary Reg A's under it, and that how that's how you make it economical to have um, you know smaller, lower dollar value uh, assets that are that are available to non-accredited investors. Um, It'll be almost something like investing in like a REIT or something along those lines where it's multiple properties that are held uh, under one entity and then you've tokenized that. Well, it would be similar to a REIT, in di but different in two ways. One, the fees would be much lower, right? Because REITs already exist and people can already invest in REITs. Sure. Um, so you'd have to have lower fees to compete away the dollars that are investing in REITs currently. Right. Uh, two, you'd actually have ownership. So correct me if I'm wrong, but if I own, like I, I go to my Charles Schwab account, I own a REIT in there. Um, I can't, the, I don't actually own that. I'm not like uh, one of the owners of that asset uh, in the truest sense of the word, right? right. I you own a REIT that owns the asset. Right. So I couldn't take out, uh, that. that's not mine to dispose of as I see fit. That's Thank the REITs. So it would be different in that sense in that in this case, you would actually own X percentage of the asset. You could use it as collateral. You could, uh, you know, sell it. You you have capital gains, liabilities, all that stuff. And you can participate in the ownership of it. So uh, a lot of these, one of the interesting things about this is most of these properties are not tokenizing all of the asset because then you have to have a very creative operating agreement right. for the uh, investors and you know the G, if the GP doesn't control sufficient amount of the of the property, then um, you know the operating agreement gets a little bit funky. So either they tokenize forty nine percent of it, or you have a, a smart contract based uh, system where when you buy into the asset, you agree to um, the property management uh, operating agreement all all in one, and then you just vote. Uh, with your share, right? If you own 10% right. of the property, you have 10% of the voting rights or, or however that operating agreement is drawn up. And then that the, the property management is, is conducted in the same way that it is now um, on the back end, but on the front end, you know, the, the LPs have voted on like who the, the GP uses right. for 
you get a say in the asset when you're looking at it from that direction versus doing it as a REIT. Cause as a REIT, you're just a paper holder of, of some, you know, company essentially. But when you're actually owning a token of a property, you have some say based on the operating agreement, but you would have some say on maybe how the assets handled and managed. Yeah. Uh, different, different investors or, or different uh, companies are going to wrap up those operating agreements in different ways. So right. may, maybe in some options, you don't have any say, but that's just going to be priced into the token, right? Like if that's less attractive, then maybe that's a 2% cheaper token. Right. Exactly. Um, So kind of last thing on this, but you know, um, if you were talking to real estate professionals, realtors, mortgage people, title, you know, what would you say they need to be doing at this point to kind of prepare themselves or be familiar with, with what's coming. Because again, you know, one of the things that you guys spend the most time doing, which it sounds like you're doing it in the right place, cause you're educating the politicians that are making the decisions, which is where it needs to happen first. But then when you get down to the general consumer or just the professional in the industry, you know, what would you tell them to be paying attention to, or how would they go about, you know, trying to learn or, or how, what should they get familiar with, you know, to make sure that they're ready to be operating in this market in the future? You know, I would I would say, and I need to do this myself, which is just be uh, read up on the the um, different experimentation that's taking place in the marketplace. Right, look and see what your peers are doing. Uh, not necessarily what I'm saying, but like what are the innovative companies that are tokenizing assets? What are their lessons learned? Right. What what is what does Red Swan learn? What does Market Space Capital learn? What does Vertalo known learn as a registered transfer agent? They're not tokenizing, but they're actually helping these companies, these, these uh, uh, funds with their uh, cap table management. So what are, what are the lessons learned? What, where are we, you know, going to, where are we going to actually achieve um, this vision of liquidity and visibility and like public market liquidity for real estate assets um, is not going to just pop up out of nowhere and no one's going to build that overnight. I would just say learn from all of the pilots that, that are going on right now and uh, be prepared to um, take your company, you know, learn from others, take take the, the, them in that direction, increase your market share and, um, you know, be ready to take advantage of more eyeballs, more business development opportunities, you know, uh, growing, growing your portfolio, portfolio um, based upon these trends. Because it, it's it's very similar to how uh, retail businesses were like in the '90s, right? There there was a lot of great retail businesses in the '90s that struggled in the the e-commerce transition. Yeah. Now many of them remained large. You know, some of them went bankrupt, but many of them remained large entities. But there's ones that really dominated that e- e-commerce transition, and there's ones that didn't. Yeah. And so I think there'll be real estate companies that dominate the transition to tokenization and greater liquidity and um, uh, more transparency. And there'll be ones that want to stick their heads in the sand and, and don't want to do anything. So, yeah, well, I mean, from a mortgage point of view, I think when, whenever, where it's going to hit us first, I think is, and it's already starting to, to some extent is on this, the secondary side where, you know, the loans that we're taking and packaging up and selling to investors and purchasing just the, the rails like you're talking about of being able to transfer assets from one, you know, or, or, you know, a note, whatever in this case, from one bank to another in a quick, you know, inexpensive fashion, which the sooner that companies get on board with that, the cost of doing the cost of operating go down. And then therefore, you know, ideally the costs 
to some degree gets passed to the consumer because whoever can do thing do things the fastest and the cheapest is going to have an advantage in the market. And then on the real estate side, you know, um, I've heard of a few things, but I haven't really seen much yet because again, the regulation side of it, but there is some work being done with like real estate contracts themselves, you know, being converted into smart contracts and um, also being held on the blockchain itself, uh, you know, being recorded that way. Now, again, these are all like, you know, like you said, running alongside with what they have to do on the the regulatory end right now but but there are some things that are going to start i think bleeding into our market a little bit in the next you know year or so or no not year, next five years or so yeah. um that uh that you know it may happen faster than we think i don't know these these things kind of move quickly sometimes as long as you don't have the regulation side to get past but um before we go uh wanted to ask you about the blockchain summit because that is coming up soon um and it's here in the metroplex um so tell us a little bit about that uh let me know you know what what's going on there how we get tickets who are all the speakers i mean in the past you've had andrew yang and ted cruz and you know all kinds of folks at this so um and did i see that you just changed the name to to the global summit or something to explain that yeah we did so it's been the texas blockchain summit the last couple of years this is the the name change this year is the north american blockchain summit so we're partnering <laughs> yeah we're expanding partnering we've always had an audience from across the country and so it just made sense to change the name and we're partnering with other state associations uh, from across the country for uh, for this event. So it's November 15th through 17th. Um, we will have uh, some tokeniza tokenization of real world assets, conversations and panels going on and some sponsors in that arena. Um, we have speakers, you know, elected officials from Texas and from across the country. Congresswoman Van Dyne will be there. Congresswoman or Congressman uh, Warren Davidson, who's a big advocate on for digital assets. Um, Senator Cruz, as you mentioned, uh, has come every year. He'll be there again this year. Senator Lummis from Wyoming. Senator Wyden from, from Oregon, uh, who chairs Senate Finance. Uh, he's a, a Democrat um, advocate for the space. So we try to stay bipartisan uh, and grab elected officials from both sides of the aisle. And then a lot of industry leaders, a lot of executives from uh, finance from uh, capital allocator perspective, um, from Bitcoin mining world exchanges like Coinbase. Coinbase will be there; they're a sponsor, and so we're we're really excited about uh, this event. On that Wednesday, we're going to have continuing education workshops for professionals, right? Accountants, law uh, lawyers, uh, bankers, energy professionals, um, registered investment advisors. So, so you name it, continuing education options um, for all of those, except for where one the banking panel may or may not have continuing ed. It may just be workshops because mm -hmm. it's difficult to get those hours accredited. Yep. Uh, but all the other panels, those will be accredited. So, um, so yeah, this year's going to be a big year for crypto in politics, especially. Um, I feel like because I think I just saw either yesterday or the day before was it the House that passed a. Uh, or maybe it was the House Republicans, or, or it was a committee. I, you know, I get lost in all the minutia of it, but uh, that put through a ban on CBDCs. Now, obviously, it's got to go through all the other places to get passed. But is that? Can you explain that? Or what happened there? Yeah. So the House Financial Services Committee has been doing a great job. They passed the um, the Fit Act, which is a market structure bill for uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets, out of that committee a few weeks ago. And then you're right. Uh, two days ago, the uh, the ban on central bank digital currencies, which was championed by uh, Representative Emmer, who is the majority whip in the House, 
um, that both of those bills will struggle in the in the Senate, unfortunately. The Senate banking uh, chairman is Sherrod Brown from Ohio, and um, there are allies on the Democratic side for this, like Senator Wyden and others, but Sherrod Brown is not one of those Democratic allies. So he is likely to be a, a real stumbling block for those pieces of legislation to get passed in the Senate. But one day they'll get through, whether that's because there's a, a change in uh, Senate leadership or um, um, what, whatever the reason. I mean, just have to. <laughs> it, it, it'll get through eventually. We're not sure how, but uh, whether that's in this Congress or the next, uh, we do expect some movement on the federal level. So uh, then, my last question to you is: So you're you're on you're on the you know talking to senators, talking to. Uh, congressman, you're talking to state legislators. Um, when are when are you going to throw your hat in the political arena? Is that is that any is that anything in the near future? No, certainly not. Yeah, no? I've got three three young kids under all under the age of eight, so um, will not be uh, throwing my hat in the ring just because I I'm with them so much. I see how much time they put in. Um, they're just always always going, always at events, always uh, out there in the community, and I just don't have that kind of yeah. bandwidth right now <laughs> yeah you got you got too much advocacy on your part well i'm thrilled and you know it it, it being it being obviously a, a texan and living here um and having you know somebody like you and the blockchain council be out there really trying to make texas you know at the forefront of all this i think is is great um you know with all the great things that comes along with our state the the idea that most of us hold where the freedom of what we can do with our money with our with our voices, you know, with, with our bodies, with everything that we, we have the ability to decide on. Um, it's great to see groups like you guys really out there advocating for, um, this technology that is going to revolutionize how we do everything. Um, you know, I made a video about this the other day, just, you know, it's like the dot-com era back in the nineties, you know, uh, there was a clip from, I think it was like Bryant Gumbel and he was trying to describe the, the at sign, you know, for, um, for email, you know, and this was like in 1995 and he couldn't even really, he was like, what's that called? How do we even describe that? And here we fast forward, you know, 25 years later and our, our entire way of life has changed. So, um, I do think that this is going to have that kind of impact. And I think the more people that understand it and the more people that come familiar with it and don't get lost in the, you know, the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world and the crypto bros of, you know, the Doge coins and all the stuff that goes along with that. But when you really look at what the technology is and what it represents and what it can do for, for, you know, security, for, you know, uh, trans transparency, all those types of things. Imagine if we had the, the federal budget on the blockchain and how they spent their money, that'd be nice. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> it'd be nice to see where all that money went. So, um, so I really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with me going through all this. Um, I think it's great what you guys are doing and I, I hope you continue to do it. Uh, keep pushing out there. And I know it takes up a lot of your time and, um, you know, having young kids really, really, uh, makes it a, a stretch to get away from time to time. But, but I'm glad that you're out there fighting for everybody. And, and I really appreciate you coming on board and, and talking to me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's fun. All right, guys, uh, that's it for today. Um, we'll be back next week. I'll be talking to another local realtor to tell us about how the market's actually treating her because as everybody likes to think that everything's going great, sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle. So um, we'll be great to hear from her. But thank you again, Lee, for joining me and I'll let you get back to your day. We'll see you guys next week.